Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to the Daily Evolver podcast. Today marks a new day for the Daily Evolver podcast. I've been doing it for, I think, 11 years now, and it's gone through many iterations. And the iteration that I'm kicking off today is a, a new once a week podcast done on Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Mountain Time. And that will be, and is, I hope if the technology is working, simulcasted to both the Integral Life website and YouTube page and the Developmental Politics Facebook page. And that should be happening and I hope it is. So again, simplifying things, no Friday, no every other week, just every Wednesday, 1 p.m. Mountain Time, that's 7 p.m. GMT. So let me say uh, also in, in sort of framing this that I'm extra happy about bringing these two organizations, Institute for Cultural Evolution and Integral Life. I was present at the founding of both of them, Integral Life, which came out of the Integral Institute founded by Ken Wilber and the Institute for Cultural Evolution founded by Steve McIntosh, of which I am member of the board. And Ken and Steve are both huge influences on me and I think many of you. And so it's good to get the gang together. And I would encourage everyone to check out these organizations, see the great stuff they have on offer and support them as you are moved. All right. So today is Wednesday, March 16th, the day President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine spoke to the US Congress and wow, what a, what a presentation. And as I have pointed out on the, my various podcasts on Ukraine so far, that uh, you know what is happening and, and the case that he presented, a very powerful case for what we developmentalists would call the defense of modernity, of freedom and democracy and rationality. And these are under attack by the forces of pre-modernity which is about conquest and the triumph of great myths. And that is the developmental struggle. Most of human history is the story of the struggles between these various worldviews that come online evolutionarily, sequentially. And so I would, I would make a couple observations about Zelensky's talk this morning. One is, boy, is he central casting savior of democracy in 2022? Just 45 years old, uh, very, very media savvy, uh, very much, you know, his, his job is winning the hearts and minds. That's what a modern leader does. Um, Pre-modern leaders don't worry about winning hearts and minds. They worry about bending people to their will. That's their job. But for a modern leader, it's winning hearts and minds. And this is interesting, again, from an integral perspective, because we posit that there is a, a collect, there's an evolution of consciousness, first of all, but both in the individual, we can all see it on our own evolution, maybe through lifetimes. 
And there is also a collective version of that, the evolution of culture. And a lot of this happens in the heart and mind. And um, so with Zelensky this morning, he shows this video, oh my God, the video of Ukraine before the carnage by the Russians, where they're you know, out in the streets and having a good time and parents with their children. And then the same situations after the Russian invasion and the horror and brutality of that. And it is very, very powerful, very powerful. And I think, uh, I don't know if it's a turning point, but it is definitely an inflection point in this, what turns out to be a worldwide struggle and hopefully not a worldwide war. And that is why I pray for the wisdom of the bureaucrats, diplomats, and deep state. So, I mean, what, what Zelensky has going for him is, first of all, well, basically, if you just look at the trajectory of evolution, he has goodness, truth, and beauty on his side, at least as it's perceived by the modern mind. You know, he is the victim of an unprovoked attack. Ukraine just wanted to be a country like other countries, dealing with other countries, other independent countries, Russia even, but not to be subject to anybody. And that's key to the modern sensibility, also the individual sensibility of keep your hands off of me. Now, of course, from a pre-modern mind or from Putin's worldview, and you know, we all live in different stages, they are all happening simultaneously, but the center of gravity, the heart of someone like Putin is pre-modern. And to that mind, this war was provoked simply because one could see that one's perceived enemies were getting together. You know, NATO, the EU, all growing into territory that ought to be mine. And to a pre-modern mind, that's a real threat, not a perceived threat. And if you look at pre-modern human history, which is the vast majority of human history until about 300 years ago, it would prove to be an accurate assessment of things. But in the long run, the more complex system begins to dominate and repress the previous stage. And in the long run, the modern heart and mind will win. And hopefully we won't have to endure some sort of apocalypse in order to get there. And, and I, 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 I think there's a, a non-zero chance that we could have a nuclear exchange or something like that. So uh, I don't, I'm not optimistic in the you know, so, sort of simplistic way that optimism is seen. I think Integral tries to be realistic. But realistically, what we see is that, you know, when absolutely necessary, the modern person with the modern heart and modern mind will rediscover their guts. And what we see is that that pre-modern strata is completely online and available to modern people. It's often in, in the shadow, it's often repressed, but it's there when it's called for. And we're seeing that in the Ukrainian people rising up 
And we can also feel it ourselves in our own response to what's going on here. And, you know, when, when you know, some part of it's just fucking bloodlust, you know, seeing the Ukrainians blow a, a, a Soviet tank to smithereens. So, you know, we can feel that. We don't want to be constricted by that or limited by that, but we want to release it. And that's why we can rely on the fact that pre-modern people are over time more powerful, uh, that, I'm sorry, modern people are over time more powerful than pre-modern people. Now, what's interesting is that it doesn't look like that to the pre-modern mind. To the pre-modern mind, modern people seem weak, decadent, chaotic, corrupted, undisciplined, soft, unmanly, unwilling to fight. And that's just self-evident to them. Every stage sees the emerging stage, what's coming on, as either a degeneration or a regression. And that has tripped up autocrats throughout history, or at least modern history. It was a big miscalculation of Hitler and the Japanese at the beginning of World War II. It's, it's fascinating to watch these documentaries about the start of the war and to see what Hitler and the Japanese were seeing about the Americans, for instance, that uh, cultural decadence, jitterbugging, um, soldiers frolicking on the beach with girls in bikini before Pearl Harbor, you know, politics divided, argumentative, materialist, hedonistic. And again, you know, pre-modern leaders' job is to bend people to their will. In modernity, the idea that everybody gets to be who they want and pursue their own happiness, it's like, how the hell is that supposed to work? That's, that's, that's the road to ruin. And so, you know, we can see this and we can see this built into history starting I don't know where, but certainly, you know, the many thousands of years, tens of thousands of years struggle between the hunter-gatherers and the settled agrarians. You know, so, you know, again, the hunter-gatherers, the warriors saw the traditionalists, uh, 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 agriculturalists, farmers as weak, soft, they could be raided and plundered, but what they didn't see is that they could also organize and make metals and weapons, and they could weather change better and bad weather. And um, I think I've mentioned this, but one of the, you know, so, of course, so much great literature and fiction is built on these great developmental struggles. And one of them, it's a favorite for Chuck and me, we've been watching it for the last couple months, is a show on Netflix called The Last Kingdom. And they just dropped season five and it's great. We're about halfway through it. And it is about the struggle of the English in the year 800, 800, 900 against the invading Vikings. So the English, you know, settling down one God, monotheistic, um, uh, agrarian farmers. Some, of course, they were had a warrior, they had a foot in warrior stage too, and they 
fought each other like crazy. But then these crazy Vikings come from the tribal stage of development. And, you know, they don't farm. They Again, they can plunder. But um, so this is the struggle. And it goes on for several hundred years. And the, sh the fulcrum of the show is a main character called Uhtred, who is just a, a great character played by an amazing actor, Alexander Dumont, I think is his name. And he was born English, kidnapped by the Danes at age, age eight, and you know, grew up with a foot in both sensibilities. And that's you know, what goes on with the show. It's fascinating. So then we can see this recapitulate where we have the uh, warrior traditional stage, which is kind of the autocrat stage, the holy warrior stage in a way, meets the traditional modern stage of development, which is where democracy wants to come online. And um, I'm gonna, at, at the end of the podcast here, I'm gonna read a bit from a new book that I've been reading called Bloodlands, which is about Stalin's starvation of Ukraine back in the early 30s. And it is, you know, it just points to, and Putin's in the same boat. It points for the problem with autocracy is the brittleness of it, uh, that complexity wins over time, but that the, there is this meta story that we are losing our identity. That, that's a story throughout history, that we're softening, that we're weakening, when in fact, we're in a way we're, 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 we're moving further from the, from the juicy source of life. It's true. These new stages add a, a, not only a complexity, but a distance from source, which is why you know, we want integral thinking, which includes all of it and lets the passion of the warrior and the you know, faithfulness and order of the traditionalist and the rationality of the modernist and the sensitivity of the postmodernists all live in one happy psyche. <laughs> so, you know, that is what we're doing. So I'll, I'll read the Stalin piece and just see how you know, autocracy sort of just consumes itself by eating its own uh, propaganda in a way, and Putin's doing the same thing. But I, I do want to just follow this thread further of how every stage sees the next as a degradation. And we see it among our, you know, people who are modern, postmodern, you know, the, the, the sort of establishment of the culture, see that where our culture is going with um, individualism and the fracturing of identity and the multiculturalism. And of course, all of these things come on line in a brutal way. They do. This is, you know, welcome to a brutal universe. It's true. It does. But there's, um, you know, a brutal logic to it and, uh, you know, a trajectory and teleology to it. So anyway, I, I wanted to point out an example of how this is happening uh, in our culture now. And I use one of my favorite foils, uh, Bill Maher, in real time with Bill Maher, his show. And, and I uh, often use Bill Maher because I pay attention to him because I think he actually has a lot of integral sensibility. But 
he, like so many of us, feel like, you know, we're, we're on a, a slide to destruction. It's that, you know, humans always think that. And so I want to play a clip from, I think it was, I don't know, episode three this season, it was a few episodes ago, where Bill Maher is having his panel discussion. And there's two panelists. One is Johan Hari, and he is an author, he is the author of, I, I think it's a terrific new book. I haven't read it, but it looks great. And I certainly like the thesis as he presented it. And that is, it's a book called Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Focus Deeply Again. And so it's about how our attention is fractured by social media and the internet and all of the things that are going on, the complexity of this particular stage of development, of ever complexifying development. And so he makes that case. And then the other panelists, Catherine Mangu Ward, who is the editor-in-chief of Reason Magazine, which I find myself liking Reason Magazine. I see it online. And um, she sort of uh, uh, offers the counter narrative about, you know, maybe it's just that we think that the world is changing if in a bad way and it isn't necessarily. So I'm gonna share that. Here that there's maybe another way to look at this and it's that, we are in a changing world. And so when we say normal brain, we mean mm. maybe a brain that was built for a world that's gone now. Okay. So that makes good sense to me. And I can't play too much of it because they don't like that. But so I'll just explain what they talk about here now, and then I'm going to play another clip. So they go through the research, and, and, and Johan Hari presents his research that shows that today's teenagers think that they can do seven things at a time, and research shows that maybe you can do one or you could do one, but maybe two, and, and that multitasking brings on cognitive decline, and people make more mistakes when they're multitasking, they remember less, and, uh, and then uh, you know, as all good self-help authors do, or nonfiction authors at least, talks about, you know, what we can do to make things better, which is exactly right. He talks about how we can learn meditation, we can be just more conscious of our attention, we can make choices about limiting. And, you know, this is the nature of evolution too, because it's a little bit like food and calories, human beings are wired to look for calories. And when about a hundred years ago, calories became plentiful with mass um, uh, agriculture, then people got fat because they didn't uh, know how to deal with it. So also with the information world, human beings are wired to get in each other's hair, to learn, to be curious, to fight with each other, to friend with each other. And so we just can't help ourselves. And when all of a sudden we have this new media where there's just everything and it's all there and oh my God, we can overeat and get sick. And so I'm, I'm good with his thesis. And I'm good with, you know, I think one of the things that will move us forward is we get tip about it. We learned how to not overeat, you know, and how to have a healthy diet in the midst of plenty. That's the challenge of the next generation for be to be sure. But Bill doesn't think so. 
Bill sees this all as, you know, the way most people see the emerging new world as a terrible degeneration. So here's how Bill responds to this idea of, you know, we can actually work with this. It's not going to get better. I hate to, I'm going to turn over all the cards. I'm sorry. It's just not. I We're just not going to put it away. I think humans are incredibly adaptable. Right. I think that technology has changed radically over the course of human history. And we seem, it seems broadly, that things are actually getting no, better think, and better. I think we're so totally to... fucked. Oh, it's a, you don't think we've been on a downward slant for, for many, many I, years? I get it that the world is, you know, changing and maybe for not people changing. who are used to it. Right? I said maybe people who are used to an older way of life look at the new Ooh. world and see well, that it looks alarming and different. But Bill, but that's it's a, that's, first of all, that's a cheap shot. Yep, it was. It's a cheap shot. It's like, how, how could you know you're older? Isn't that something? Now, I have to cheap shot for her to say that, you know, we have, a, 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 we come of age with a certain mentality and the world continues to pass us by. I... I don't think that's an insult. And Bill's very sensitive to that. And I'm sorry she, she you know, agreed with him that it was a cheap shot. It, it wasn't, you know, there's, there's a lot of research that shows that people's idea of how life should be, of the music they like, of the aesthetic sensibilities, of the way they wanna deal with people, the, the sexual roles that they have, get baked in in our late teens and early 20s. And that's also where we look at the world and see what's wrong with it and what our generation needs to do to make it better. And our generation did that, Bill. I'm your age. You know, we were the baby boomers. We came on, on, on board and saw that the world had you know, a budding ecological problem, a civil rights problem, an animal rights problem, all things that you're into. And we have made tremendous progress. We've also sort of brought online the whole interiority, the psychological self. It's seen as narcissism and criticized, and maybe part of it is, but it's also uh, self-realization. So uh, baby boomers have done their thing, and it's time for the next generation to do their thing, which is why I'm in favor of individual lifetimes. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I think she should have held her ground, but she didn't, and so Bill was insulted by the idea that he doesn't understand because he's old. I do, I understand that one. I wouldn't be you know, filling out the map here if I didn't also point out that in the emerging integral stage of development, how, how it's seen by earlier stages, and it's you know, completely befuddling integral consciousness is to the previous stages. I know for myself to the degree that I try to do it on a good day, my conservative ideas seem like a regression to my liberal friends. My progressive ideas seem like a degeneration to my conservative friends. And, you know, integral is seen generally as being confused, too heady, too equivocal, too both sidesy. You know, you can't do both sidesism, but yeah, you can. I, I do. So um, you know, I see it in myself. I I often think to myself, you know, you'd be a hell of a president. Uh, you believe the last person you listen to, and and I do. 
this morning with Zelensky, I'm thinking, yes, send in the MiGs. And then I read something and I say, no, don't send in the MiGs. Now's the time to escalate. No, now's the time to de-escalate. Uh, there's a, emerging counter narratives all the time that uh, Integral tries to be friendly to and see the truth in all worldviews. And that's a very confusing thing to people who are identified with one worldview. And it's one of the things that we have to deal with as integralists. All right. So um, I did want to share something that I've been reading. I'm going to read a few paragraphs from this book that really points out a couple things. One is, as I said, it points out the brittleness and the the nature of compounding fantasy that can happen in an autocratic world and, and with somebody who is not having to contend with other worldviews. So it's the danger of the autocrat. And also it br brilliantly illuminates the karma or at least some of the karma, big part of the karma that is going on right now between Russia and Ukraine and the identity of that Ukrainians have that is in opposition to the Russians and uh, springs out of their historic domination and victimization by the Russians. And so this is uh, from Bloodlands, and it's a book called uh, Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin by Timothy Snyder. It's very, got all kinds of awards, whatever. Um, and it is, this is the part about the mass starvation of 1933, which, as he says, was a result of Stalin's first five-year plan implemented between 1928 and 1932. In those years, Stalin had taken control of the heights of the Communist Party, forced through a policy of industrialization and the collectivization, and emerged as the frightful father of a beaten population. He had transformed the market into the plan, farmers into slaves, and the wastes of Siberia and Kazakhstan into a chain of concentration camps. His policy had killed tens of thousands by execution, hundreds of thousands by exhaustion, and millions by starvation. He was still rightly concerned about opposition within the Communist Party, but was possessed of immense political gifts assisted by willing collaborators and atop a bureaucracy that claimed to see and make the future. So <clears throat> this is the five-year plan. He accepted no bad news about the five-year plan and he goes into great detail about this. But then we have 1930, the end of 1931. Many collective farms met their requisition targets and this is the farms in Ukraine. They met their grain requisitions only by handing over their seed grain. And of course, seed grains, what you keep, beside, so keep behind so you can plant for the future harvest. Without it, you're out of business as a farmer. Stalin ordered on the 5th of December that collective farms that had not yet fulfilled their annual requirements must surrender their seed grain. Stalin perhaps believed that peasants were hiding food and thought that the threat of taking the seed grain would motivate them to hand over what they had. But by this time, many of them truly had nothing. 
By the end of 1931, many peasants were already going hungry. With no land of their own and little ability to resist requisitions, they simply had no way to ensure that a sufficient number of calories reached their households. Then, in early 1932, they had no seed grain with which to plant the fall crop. By the summer of 1932, Stalin knew more than a million people had already starved to death. Stalin blamed the local party leader. His first impulse and his lasting tendency was to see the starvation of Ukrainian peasants as a betrayal by members of the Ukrainian Communist Party. He could not allow the possibility that his own policy of collectivization was to blame. The problem must be the, in the implementation in the local leaders anywhere but in the concept itself. Do we feel echoes of this in Putin today? So then we have Stalin began to imagine that the famine was a plot directed against him personally. Stalin managed a nice reversal, imagining that it was the peasants, not him, who were using hunger as a weapon. So the book goes on then to describe six months of horror that I don't even want to bring up here. It's just, it's right down to cannibalism. Let's just put it there. It can get as horrible as it has ever been in even the modern world. And you can see that in Ukraine right now. So anyway, we go on with the way Stalin processed it as autocrat. He interpreted the disaster of collectivization in the last weeks of 1932, as he interpreted them. He achieved new heights of ideological daring. The famine in Ukraine, whose existence he had admitted earlier, when it was far less severe, was now a fairy tale, a slanderous rumor spread by enemies. Stalin had developed an interesting new theory that resistance to socialism increases as its successes mount because its foes resist with greater desperation. Thus, any problem in the Soviet Union could be defined as an example of enemy action. And enemy action could be defined as evidence of progress. Thus, a peasant slowly dying of hunger was, despite appearances, a saboteur working for the capitalist powers in their campaign to discredit the Soviet Union. Starvation was resistance, and resistance was a sign that the victory of socialism was just around the corner. These were not merely Stalin, Stalin's musings in Moscow. This was the ideological line enforced up and down the system. Soviets produced the utterly tortured conclusion that the saboteurs hated socialism so much that they intentionally let their families die. Thus, the racked bodies of sons and daughters and fathers and mothers were nothing more than a facade behind which foes plotted the destruction of socialism. Even the starving themselves were sometimes presented as enemy propagandists with a conscious plan to undermine socialism. Young Ukrainian communists in the cities were taught that the starving were enemies of the people who, quote, risked their lives to spoil our optimism. Wow. 
Then it goes on, Stalin didn't accept any outside help. He didn't even want to admit it. Um, he could have uh, suspended food exports, uh, could have kept the death toll to hundreds of thousands rather than millions. And then we have, in the waning weeks of 1932, facing no external security threat and no challenge from within, with no conceivable justification except to prove the inevitability of his rule, Stalin chose to kill millions of people in the Soviet Ukraine. He shifted to a position of pure malice, where the Ukrainian peasant was sometime, somehow the aggressor, and he, Stalin, the victim. And then this chilling last paragraph. All in all, no fewer than 3.3 million Soviet citizens died in Ukraine, and about the same number of Ukrainians by nationality died in the Soviet Union as a whole. The Soviet census of 1937 found 8 million fewer people than projected. Stalin suppressed the census's findings and had the responsible demographers executed. So, um, you know, this is the karma that they're dealing with. Humanity's dealing with this sort of thing in many different ways. And um, I don't think there's a reasonable expectation based on this for Putin to back down. He will, um, you know, if this is a, uh, any kind of an indication, just continue to create the fantasies of persecution. So um, hopefully we'll see there's a strata of Russian society that is as horrified by this as the rest of the world, or the modern world at least, so we'll see what happens, uh, but, um, you know, uh, all right, well, um, I'm a little over time, but who cares? It's the internet. Thank you for joining me, I, and uh, I will see you next time on The Daily Evolver. Again, you can join live at one o'clock on Wednesdays, one o'clock Mountain Time, that's seven uh, Greenwich Time, three Eastern Time. And I am live on Integral Life's website and their YouTube page, and on the Institute for Cultural Evolution's Facebook page, which is called the Developmentalist Facebook page. So there's a lot there, but I think we'll probably have it in type on the video here. So anyway, thanks again, folks, and I look forward to seeing you next week, same time, same station. Jeff Salzman, signing off.